This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. On Easter weekend 2015, a set of unlikely thieves broke into the most secure diamond vault and carried out the best, or should that be worst, robbery London and England, for that matter, has ever seen. But how did the most secure vault in the whole of the UK become the target of this wily group? And more importantly, who were these hardened criminals? A gang of young whippersnappers? Or were they pensioners looking to carry out one last job? The police were stumped and the hunt was on for the most successful diamond thieves in the whole of the country's history who had made their way into the night with millions of pounds worth of loot. Today on Macabre London, we uncover the story of the Hatton Garden heist. Welcome back to another episode of Macabre London. I'm Nikki Druce, your host with the silent G, and today I'll be taking you on a journey down another of London's grimy backstreets to uncover a macabre tale from the city's past. However, before we get into today's episode, if you're new here and you want to see more videos where we deep dive into some lesser-known historic tales from London's past, then please don't forget to subscribe so you never miss a new episode. If you aren't new here and you regularly enjoy the show and want it to continue, please consider supporting me on Patreon. The link is in the show notes. There's loads of bonus content over there, including my monthly show, Gin and Ghost Stories, where I drink gin and tell ghost stories, and lots of other fun spooky bonus bits and bobs. Also, make sure you stay tuned to the end of today's episode, as I have an exciting announcement too, and it might just have something to do with what I'm wearing. Now, 
if you've been listening to Macabre London for a while now, you'll know I don't tend to cover modern cases. I personally find older cases much more interesting as they have a historical element to them. So unusually today, I'm actually covering a case from 2015. Now, I'll let you in on a little secret. I didn't think this case was that recent. I'll admit someone mentioned this one to me in passing and I didn't really fully pay attention and I just assumed it was from at least the 1940s, if not before. So when I began researching this, I was amazed to find out that it's so current. The reason I thought it was old is because it sounds like a good old-timey movie heist plot, which sounds like something myths and legends are made of, and you'll soon find out why my thoughts weren't too far off the mark. However, before we land ourselves securely in 2015, let's jump in our time machine to 1940 to find out all about our destination for today's crime, Hatton Garden Safety Deposit Vault. Hatton Garden was and is a well-renowned hub of diamond trading. The area slap bang in central London was a thief's dream. The street in Hoban is lined with jewellery shops, mainly independent artisan traders, and despite the area having a reputation as being very high-end, it's also a much cheaper place to buy diamonds for that very reason. It's homegrown businesses without the overheads of high street brands. But also for this reason, smaller independent businesses don't have as much security – And in the 1940s, thefts along the row of jewellery businesses was at an all-time high, with thousands of pounds worth of jewels being stolen on a regular basis overnight from unsuspecting shop owners. In order to make sure the area didn't just become a smash-and-grab destination for returning jobbing criminals, the area had its own highly secure safe developed, the first of its kind which would be a veritable Fort Knox to any suspecting jewel thieves. This would mean that those who traded in Hatton Garden could move their goods there overnight for safekeeping and then collect them the following day, knowing they'd be quite literally safe and sound. The vault was built to store almost a thousand individual lockboxes inside for the jewellery businesses and traders. It was made of reinforced concrete and as soon as it was publicised as existing as the world's most impenetrable vault, it became the definition of desire for many hardened criminals residing in London. Fast forward to 2015 and an experienced gang had waited their whole lives to get their hands on the treasures that lay within. This gang was unlike any other, however, and unlike the expected young, fit and healthy group of 'er ne'er-do-wells, this was a group who knew London like the back of their hand. They were professionals, a supergroup of the capital's most elite scammers and robbers, whose average age was 64. This wasn't a game of agility, this was a battle of wits and the organised group had all the skills they needed to empty the vault and retire off the proceeds. This would be the one last job to top them all, and with the loot divided up, they'd retire rich and happy. Let me introduce you to the four key players in our ragtag gang of geriatrics. First up, we have the governor, the kingpin, the head honcho, Brian Reader. Brian was 76 years young, the oldest of the gang, a master criminal who had been around in the East End glory days of gangsters. Brian's slate wasn't a clean one, far from it. In fact, he was jailed for eight years for his part in a notorious robbery, the 1983 Brinks-Matt robbery, in which an estimated 26 million in gold bars was stolen from Heathrow Airport. That is also quite the story, so if you enjoy the heist, let me know and I may just cover that one too. Next, we have another heist aficionado, Terry Perkins. On the day of the heist, Terry turned 67, 
spending his birthday carrying out the UK's largest robbery, which sounds much more fun than a meal at the Harvester, I must admit. Terry had been caught in 1983 and arrested for his part in the Security Express depot heist. He and his gang, which included Barbara Windsor's, aka Peggy Mitchell's, one-time husband Ronnie, made off with over £6 million in cash. The robbers were quickly caught though and Terry spent 22 years in prison for the crime. Seriously, I could do a little mini-series on this lot's crimes alone and maybe at some point in the future I will if you want me to. John Kenny Collins, 74. He had a multitude of previous offences, mainly robbery and theft, which spanned over 50 years. He started his criminal career in 1961 and as such there wasn't much he didn't know about turning over a gaff. Our youngest key member at the sprightly age of 60 was Danny Jones, an eccentric but highly skilled thief. He, like all his other compadres, had been responsible for many high-profile thefts. He was the expert in power tools. He was known to be a bit out of the box and wore a fez hat to sleep along with his dear old mum's nightie. The rest of the gang were recruited for their skills in the industry and weren't necessarily dab old hands like our key four. We'll hear more about them as we encounter them. One person who avoided being lumped into the final four is Carl Wood, another power tools expert. He didn't complete his part in the raid, but we'll hear more about that in due course. Another mystery man who was an adept alarm engineer went by the Madonna-esque mononym, Basil. So now we come to the planning stage of the event. All of these career criminals had been joking for a while about cracking into the Hatton Garden vault, and over time, this joke turned into a reality. Serious planning began in 2013, and Danny Jones began learning about tools which might just be able to break open a safe. The planning for the job was meticulous. All aspects of the criminality they would be carrying out was risk-assessed and double-checked. Inside intel was obtained about the vault, numerous visits were carried out by other paid employees of the gang, inquiring about renting a lockbox, and each time information was gathered and another important piece of the puzzle was added to the roster of execution. Over the three years, tools were bought and tested, Videos were watched online of how to operate the equipment for the job and a blueprint of the layout of the building was pieced together. Alarms were counted, lifts, exits and doors were all made a note of and thorough step-by-step instructions were devised. Surveillance was carried out on the building to know who came and went and at what times of day. Security was monitored and it revealed a weak spot. Over weekends and bank holidays, temporary security was used. These temps didn't know the building, didn't know the regulars or the maintenance staff, and so it would be easy for the robbers to use this inexperience to their advantage. After a while, this temporary security presence became a permanent fixture as contracts were swapping hands, and as such, the security at the vault was becoming lax. Records of visitors had stopped being kept, and CCTV wasn't as keenly monitored as it once had been. The cracks were starting to show and the old boys were ready to jimmy them wide open. Easter weekend of 2015 was fast approaching, and during this time there would be no staff on site. The vault would be full, and the security would be next to none, with it being remote external monitoring of the building only for a full four days. The loot had been left unmonitored, and the crims were going to take full advantage. So on Easter Thursday, April 2nd, 2015, at the civilised time of around 9pm, the gang did just that. 
To get everyone where they needed to be without raising suspicion, the gang arrived in dribs and drabs. Brian Reader caught the bus using a stolen Freedom Pass to get to the vault so he couldn't be tracked tapping in and out. The perfect alibi. John Kenny Collins drives to the vault using a white van and he parks in a neighbouring street at around 8.20. Inside the van are all the tools for the job, cleverly disguised in wheelie bins. Carl Woods and Danny Jones arrive at the same time. They're wearing high-vis vests and disguised as gas contractors. They head to the building with the plausible story of being on a call-out if anyone asks questions. Also, no one asks questions of someone in a high-vis vest walking confidently. It's a foolproof plan. About an hour later, a man with red hair walks toward the building, carrying a bin bag on his shoulder, which obscures his face from CCTV. He goes through the front door, then opens the back door. Once the back door is open, Kenny drives the white van to the back door, where our disguised gas contractors unload the wheelie bins. Inside these wheelie bins are all the tools needed to break into the vault. They also have large metal joists with them to help break the vault open. Whilst the criminals struggle with the weight of the bins, the van drives off and parks up around the corner. Kenny exits and takes up residence in a nearby building to keep lookout. No one knows quite how the gang managed to gain entry, but it's thought someone may have been a mole on the inside who provided them with a key and the alarm code in return for a cut of the proceeds. Once inside the building, the tools are moved to their needed positions within the main atrium. The lift is called, but the plan isn't to use it. Instead, Basil and Danny ride down in it, disabling it two floors shy of the basement where the vault resides. In order to prevent the alarm surrounding the vault being activated, the criminals abseil down the lift shaft, bringing themselves out through a hatch and straight into the alarm room, where they have 60 seconds to deactivate it before it goes off and calls the police. After a minute that must have felt like a lifetime, the pair jimmy open a metal shutter, shimmy underneath it, and help themselves to the unlocked alarm cupboard. Basil cuts the required lines, and after a nerve-wracking few seconds, it ceases to beep. It's up to Basil and Danny to now collect their criminal comrades so the job can begin. They then smash the door open from the inside of the room containing the vault, and the others make their way down to join them so the real work can start. There is one more gate to be cut open, which they manage to do, and then they're face to face with the concrete walls of the impenetrable vault. The concrete surrounding the vault was over half a metre thick and reinforced. In order to break into the vault, the gang would have to use large circular boring drills, but they'd been practising for this and they knew exactly what they had to do. To get through the concrete, the gang had to drill three large holes, which would allow the two Agile members of the group, Danny and Basil, to climb through. The three holes took an agonising 30 to 45 minutes each to drill, so this wasn't a smash and grab. The gang needed time to do the job properly, which definitely put everyone on edge. The drilling began, however, as they're starting to make headway with hole number one. Unbeknownst to them, the alarm system, which was disarmed, had still managed to text the security service, who dispatched a security guard to check the vault. From the lookout point, Kenny, who was keeping an eye on proceedings, spots a security guard approaching. He radios the gang and tells them to stop drilling. As you may remember, the security were temporary, didn't really know the building, and after a quick look and listen, the guard gets back in his vehicle and goes back to his office for undoubtedly some more kip. 
Again, the inexperience of the security played right into the gang's hands as he wasn't aware that the correct procedure after an alarm alert is to ring the police to check the building so the gang get the all clear from Kenny and get the drills whirring into action once more. Shortly after their minor security hiccup, they face a big bump in the road. The holes have now been drilled through the concrete, but unexpectedly on the other side, they find that the inner wall of the safe has been bolted to the floor, rendering it immovable and as such they can't break through it. In order to finish the job, they will need better tools and in particular a hydraulic ram. Without the proper tools to finish the job, the gang have to call it a night and leave, but they're not giving up that easily. They check that the coast is clear and head out into the night, planning their next move on the journey home. The next day, they make sure to obtain what they need from a hardware shop and they cautiously return with the tools to finish the job. However, by this time, Carl Woods had bottled it, as had Brian Reader, thinking it was too risky to return to the failed job in case their attempts had been noticed, but the rest of the gang cased the joint for around an hour, making sure things were safe before heading back inside to give it one more go. The new equipment worked perfectly to break through the bolted wall of the vault and the inner machinations of the once named impenetrable fortress were now on display. Danny and Basil made their way into the vault through the tiny crawl space they created and began opening up the boxes inside. However, now short on manpower by two people, tired from a full night of work the evening before and definitely feeling their years, they managed to get into just 73 of the 999 lockboxes, but only 44 of them had anything inside. But although the number broken into might be small, their contents were mighty. The gangland geezers stash what they can and make a bid for freedom, escaping into the night with millions of unmounted diamonds and precious stones, cash, gold ingots, pearls and other rare pieces of jewellery. After the Easter bank holiday, those returning to work in Hatton Garden eagerly awaited their items to restock their shops, but they were greeted with a police barrier and the news that the vault had been done over. There was no doubt about it that police had their work cut out. Even a cursory glance at the damage left behind in the vault showed this was an adept team of criminals and a highly organised job. As the heist had been carried out with such great skill, the police were dumbfounded and had very little to go on to catch those responsible. Once those who owned the stolen items had time to tot up what had gone missing, they valued it at around £40 million. But although this was what was estimated, it seems this was what would have been held in the vault as a whole, and as the men had only managed to get into under a hundred of the boxes, the final total was actually more like 14 million that the thieves had made off with. However, this was enough loot to make all of those involved more than set for life, and now all they had to do was slink off into the sunset. The news of the heist broke almost instantly, and people were aghast that the impossible had happened. It was splashed all over the headlines and the news channels reported it in detail. As soon as the news broke, the general public were instantly on the side of the criminals. This was one of the wealthiest streets in England to steal from and people didn't care much that diamonds had gone missing from those who could seemingly afford to lose a few bob. From appearances, this was a victimless crime. 
Those that had items stolen were obviously quite wealthy, but as it turns out, diamond trading is actually far removed from those that actually hold and sell the items, and the revenue isn't as high as you may think, with big overheads and not huge profits if you're a small-time jeweller. In fact, Hatton Garden is said to be a place to buy diamonds, as they're often half the price of high street chains. So despite the public's animosity towards those affected by the crime, this was actually devastating for the individuals involved. But before we continue on with today's tale, just want to take a moment to tell you about a podcast that I've really been enjoying at the moment. And it's called The Art of Crime. The Art of Crime is a brand new history podcast about the unlikely collisions between true crime and the arts. Season one is titled The Unusual Suspects, Artists Accused of Being Jack the Ripper. It profiles six renowned artists who have fallen under suspicion as the Whitechapel murderer. Lewis Carroll, yes, that Lewis Carroll, is the one best known to us today. Joining him, among others, are the master wig maker and costume designer said to have supplied Scotland Yard with disguises whilst it was hunting the Ripper, the actor who originated the dual role of Dr Jackal and Mr Hyde and was playing in London at the time of the killing spree, and the Victorian equivalent of a pop star whose brother, it just so happens, has also been accused of committing the crimes. As you meet each artist, you'll find out who they were, what it was like to work in their trades in the Victorian period and why they've been nominated as Ripper candidates. You'll also explore that larger question, why have artists, especially great artists, proven so attractive as suspects? And on a personal note, I've listened to this show and it's really, really good. And um, I think if you like this one, you're really, really going to enjoy it. So make sure you check it out. So subscribe today to wherever you get your podcasts and make sure to visit www.artofcrimepodcast.com. Okay, thanks for listening. Now let's head back to the heist and see if the police can catch these outlaws. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at Burrow.com Acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. The police began investigating the crime scene, but instantly they knew they weren't dealing with any common criminals. 
These were people that knew exactly what they were doing. The forensics team started looking for traces of biological evidence left behind by the perpetrators, which may lead them to the people involved. Despite scouring the entire place, not one hair, drop of blood or fingerprint was found. It was as if the whole heist had been carried out by ghosts. With no biological evidence to work from, the police had their work cut out. In order to track down those responsible, the branch of the Met Police responsible for targeting organised crime known as the Flying Squad were drafted in to work on the case. Initially, they believed this was a heist that had been carried out by organised criminals, possibly from out of the country. But to begin their investigations, they needed to look a little closer to home. A huge number of detectives were roped into the case and each issued with the only thing they could go on, the CCTV which was collected from the surrounding area. Then commenced painstaking hours of cross-referencing every single person and number plate which went to and from the area over the Easter weekend and even before then. After going through the footage with a fine tooth comb, the potential perpetrators were spotted coming and going from the scene. The CCTV didn't show the men's faces clearly at all, but what it did show was the vehicles the gang had used to get to and from the crime. Automatic number plate recognition was used to track down the vehicles that had been spotted in the area, and one came up trumps with a well-known hardened London crime lord, John Kenny Collins. The white Mercedes which had been spotted a few days before the raid in the area was then also spotted heading to Machine Mart, a hardware shop over the Easter weekend, which was where the owner of the vehicle had proceeded to buy a piece of equipment which would have definitely been able to break open the vault. The car was traced to Kenny's address in North London and it was then that the police decided that they would play the long game. Instead of arresting Kenny instantly, which would cause the other members of the gang to scatter along with the loot, they used him as bait to lead them to his associates. And they didn't have to wait long. Danny Jones was spotted riding shotgun with Kenny in the Mercedes and it only took a quick background check to realise that Danny was also the type of guy that might just break into a bank vault. Police cross-referenced the evidence they had already and when they checked the machine mark CCTV, it just so happened that Danny was spotted inside the shop on the morning the equipment was bought for the raid. With those loose ends beginning to be tied up, the phone records were searched for Danny and Kenny and this gave them Terry Perkins' number. Again, another quick background check revealed that this was someone who had previous and again, who may just be someone interested in breaking into a vault. After further surveillance, they then subsequently saw the trio together at a pub, with Brian Reader joining them, completing the quadrangle of prime suspects. Police secretly filmed the four men at the pub, and this showed what was a complete admission of what went down at the vault. The trio even explained to Reader what happened the next day after he and Carl had left. This was everything the police needed to make arrests. The best in the biz had managed to lead the cops straight to them. The mistakes the robbers made were ones that people who had grown up with the technology they were using more than likely wouldn't have made. The gang were very cautious to not leave any physical evidence behind at the scene, but they left digital fingerprints everywhere. Their phones and laptops were their downfall, and something older people may not quite understand the consequences of, the six weeks after the heist was one occurrence after another of digital proof that the gang had committed the crime and this was something they definitely didn't realise they were doing. 
There was one member of the gang, however, who did understand this, and that was the mystery man, Basil, who had not shown up anywhere during the investigation of the crime, and this led the police to assume this was someone younger. So that was the main kingpins taken care of and arrested. But what about the minor players in the scheme? The police were also interested in tracking them down, believing they may hold the key to the stash of treasures, the majority of which had yet to be uncovered. And they weren't wrong. An associate of the heisters called William Lincoln, or Billy the Fish to his mates on account of him being a fishmonger, stored the stolen goods for the gang for a short while after the raid, so if arrested, the gang could plead innocence. The transfer of stolen items then implicated another man, Hugh Doyle, who was convicted for allowing the transfer to happen in a yard he was renting. Doyle was arrested and then at court charged just under £400 for the minor incident. The gang were caught on CCTV making the transfer of the goods in black bin bags from a silver minivan in Doyle's yard. He insists he was never paid anything by the gang for his involvement, but others suspect he must have received some kind of backhander which was worth the £400 fee. But this has never been proven. It took six weeks for detectives to garner enough evidence and surveillance to deliver enough of a case to be able to arrest all those they believe were involved. And once all the branches of the gang were investigated, a full picture was formed of exactly what happened over the weeks prior and post the raid. The police now had to move quickly and exact their arrests in a similar timescale so none of the men made a bid for freedom. Once arrested, the homes were searched of all those supposedly involved and inside duffel bags and holdalls wrapped inside plastic bags and stuffed neatly away in drawers and cupboards were millions in jewels, gold and cash. Despite the goods having been temporarily stashed elsewhere when the gang thought they'd gotten away with the heist, the bounty was divided up and returned to the crims. Police were amazed that the diamond geezers hadn't made more of an effort to stash their loot and it had just been left to be found. If they'd been smart, they should have arranged for it to be at least away from their homes, if not even out of the country. If the jewels hadn't been found, it's more than likely that the case would have been very difficult to prove, and convictions would have either not been possible or sentences heavily reduced. Seemingly, the downfall of these old-school criminals was just that. They were old-school and operating when a different set of rules applied. They'd not kept up with the times. To add to the list of things not to do after a heist, a copy of Forensics for Dummies was found in the home of Danny Jones, alongside other things which implicated him in the heist, such as balaclavas, masks, cash and a certain type of drill which was thought to have been used during the raid. However, I don't know how much that can implicate you, as if the police took one look in my house, they'd find me guilty for all sorts of stuff with my book collection and my taste in fashion. However, the police supplied the jury with enough evidence to implicate the men and almost everyone involved was given some kind of prison sentence. With the gang behind bars, the hunt was now on for the single missing suspect in the whole case, the man known simply as Basil. Brian Reader, 76, John Kenny Collins, 74, Terry Perkins, 67 and Danny Jones, 60, decided that it was a fair cop and they all pled guilty at Woolwich Crown Court, which helped to reduce their sentence down to seven years from the mandatory ten, except Reader, who got six years three months, Carl Wood six years, as they only did one day each on the job, and William, Billy the Fish Lincoln, seven years, which I personally think is quite harsh given that he only handled the stolen goods. 
Basil, who was the unknown man on the CCTV, managed to get away scot-free, and it seemed like he may have gotten away with it altogether, but as the months passed, the Met's Flying Squad investigation unit hadn't forgotten about him. They kept chipping away, knowing that if they managed to catch everyone else, there must be some shreds of evidence left which would lead them to the mystery man. When police had identified Kenny Collins way back when they first suspected him, they didn't head in to arrest him straight away. They kept close surveillance on him, knowing that he would more than likely reveal the other players in the game, and he definitely did lead them to the other three members of his gang, but he also led them to a cast of other characters, any of which may have been Basil. However, after reviewing each potential suspect, they were discounted as having nothing to do with the heist. That is, until one man seemed highly suspect. On the 17th of April 2015, Kenny was seen heading to Shoreditch Park in the East End. This wasn't a one-off meeting, however, as seven days later on the 24th, the same thing happened again in the same place with the same person. With their suspicions heightened, investigators began following Kenny, knowing that at any point he might be meeting up with the suspicious man again, and they could begin to narrow down who this was. Police followed Kenny's car to an area in North London, and from there they were able to track down the suspect's address by a process of elimination. After months of digging, they managed to work out that the man was known as Michael John Seed. Seed had an interesting background and was an unlikely criminal. His father was an academic at Cambridge, and it seemed that he was much wiser than the other four main members of the gang. Firstly, he was a bit younger, in his mid-fifties, understood modern technology, and in the weeks and months after the heist, he'd gone completely to ground, making sure he was undetectable. He had no job, no income, and no phone. He didn't have a car, he only used cash, so he had no card trails, and more importantly, after the heist had been carried out, he'd cut off all communications with the gang, except the occasional visit from Kenny, which he made sure was well away from his home. In fact, without Kenny, Michael wouldn't have been on the cops' radar at all. Seed was under surveillance for two years. The surveillance showed that he was skilled at evading CCTV and he often went out of his way to avoid street cameras. However, once they had an inkling that Michael may have been Basil, they used all their powers to match him to the scene of the crime. However, police didn't have enough to actually convict Michael as there was no strong evidence to tie him to the crime so they needed to go even deeper. They hired experts to compare the footage obtained from the heist of the mysterious Basil and ran this side by side with Michael. What the experts and investigators realised was that Basil and Michael had a distinctive walk. Basil and Michael both walked with a slight kick to their left leg, which gave him a recognisable swagger. This comparison, alongside the meetings with Kenny, were enough for the police to obtain a search warrant and as they had his address, they were able to get their man. Police had just one chance to do a search of Michael's home, and if he got wise beforehand, they would have essentially let him go free. If police couldn't produce any evidence as a result of the search, they would have had to have put him on bail, and during this time, Michael could easily get rid of anything and everything he may have had which tied him to the heist. However, on the morning of the 27th of March 2018, four years after the heist, police entered Seed's flat. What they found inside couldn't have been any more incriminating. There was a large amount of gold jewellery, gold bars and a smelter, a piece of equipment used to melt down gold to make it more saleable in smaller pieces. 
Even more damning was that two of the gold ingots that were discovered contained serial numbers which correlated to those that had been stolen on the night of the heist. Michael had clearly become complacent and felt he wasn't in any danger of being caught as his flat was littered with the proceeds of his part in the break-in. Everything was on display. With this concrete evidence, police had everything they needed and Michael, the once mysterious Basil, was arrested. The amount of loot found in Michael's flat was valued at over £150,000 worth of precious stones, gold and other jewellery items. It's thought that Seed had been selling this and living off the proceeds for the last four years since the heist. Almost a year later, on the 15th of March 2019, Seed was convicted for his part in the break-in and sentenced to 10 years behind bars. He was ordered to pay back his 4.5 million share of the profits to those he'd stolen from. The condition being that if he didn't, his sentence would be extended. Unlike the other members of the gang, Michael entered a not guilty plea and this landed him with the maximum sentence for the crime, which was 10 years instead of 7. This now meant that every member of the gang was now behind bars. With the other members of the gang four years into their seven-year sentences, they were all well aware that being well-behaved would definitely offer them their best chance of getting out early. And for men in their 60s and 70s, every day was a day they couldn't afford to spend locked up. After they'd been jailed, Danny Jones confessed to police that he'd like to do the honest thing and give his share of the heist money back to the people he stole it from. He said if police would let him out of prison for the day, he'd escort them to the place he left the loot so that it could be recovered against his debts. Jones took officers to Edmonton Cemetery in North London. Here he revealed that he'd stashed two bags under a grave plaque where they'd been sitting quietly ever since he'd stashed them there a few weeks after the heist. This helped Danny to pay back a large amount of what he'd been requested by the courts and he gave himself a pat on the back for being a good boy. However, what the police didn't tell Danny was that they'd already found a bigger bag of the stolen goods in another grave in the cemetery. Danny told them that the two bags were everything he had, but he was telling porcupies. Police knew Danny was lying because before his arrest, they'd bugged his car and heard him talking about the stolen items and where he'd stashed them, which led them to the cemetery in the first place, where they recovered the biggest stash of loot. Despite Danny's intention to deceive the police, the total of the seized goods was still used to pay off his requested amount, which did ultimately lead to him being able to leave prison on time. The aftermath of the heist had a devastating effect on the jewellery industry in Hatton Garden and led to the closure of the Hatton Garden vault itself. After all, the crims had shown everyone how to successfully break into it and so it would only be a matter of time before someone tried it again, but with the benefit of learning from the Diamond Geezer's mistakes. Many jewellery artisans lost their businesses. Many people who had family heirlooms stashed as nest eggs lost them and a large percentage of the jewellery and items have still never been recovered to this day and more than likely never will be. Police only managed to recover just over a quarter of what was stolen and still to this day it's believed that a lot of the gains from the heist were disseminated to family, sold and transferred into cash which was put in other saleable assets which are still with friends, family and associates of the original gang. But obviously this isn't provable and as such the loot is now long gone. Such a convoluted last job carried out by an unlikely band of criminals definitely pricked up the ears of Hollywood 
and not one but two films and one series have been made about the heist. The Hat and Garden Job, The King of Thieves, starring the one and only bloody Michael Caine, and the series The Hat and Garden Heist, starring Timothy Spall, which are all worth a watch. So where are they now? Michael, aka Basil, who is now 66, is still in prison as of November 2022. He had a further six years added to his 10-year sentence, as he's failed to pay back the money he owes. Brian Reader, who will be turning 84 on the 28th of February this year in 2023, was released from prison a year early due to ill health in 2020. He is still yet to pay back what he's been requested to by the court. John Kenny Collins, now aged 82, was released and then put back in prison as he hasn't repaid his requested share after assets he said were worth more than they were didn't sell for as much as the court said they would. Danny Jones, 66, has now been released from prison and has paid back £548,218.47 of his share of the heist. Terry Perkins died at age 69 behind bars in maximum security at Belmarsh Prison. Terry suffered from diabetes and also heart problems. He died not long after finding out that if he didn't pay back his share of the loot, he'd be jailed for a further seven years. William Billy the Fish Lincoln, now 67, and Carl Wood, 66, have now been released. The vault today sits empty, but plans are underway to move the entirety of it, including the hole in the wall, to the new Museum of London, which is currently at the very early stages of construction in its takeover of the ancient Smithfield market. So one day in the future, you might be able to stand in the vault and to see for yourself the mastery of what was England's greatest robbery, which was performed by men whose combined ages totaled over 400 years old. Right, don't go anywhere just yet. Time for that announcement I teased you with at the beginning. You've all been asking and so I've finally been able to oblige. I now have merch and I've launched a very limited run of exclusive designs with everything from hoodies through to mugs and long sleeve shirts and everything is limited so if you want to get in on it you'll have to be really quick. The hoodie I'm currently wearing is so comfy and I've honestly not stopped wearing it since it arrived. The sizing is really nice and generous. The items wash really well too and I can guarantee that they'll become a staple in your wardrobe. It's not just logos either, I've made a few other different designs too. If you don't like wearing merch, I also have a limited edition mug on the website which will be available for just a few weeks depending on the demand and then it will be gone forever to make way for new fun designs. So if you want to support the show and get something fun in return, then please have a little look. The link is in the description or you can go to macabrelondon-shop.fourthwall.com. Let me spell it for you. M-A-C-A-B-R-E-L-O-N-D-O-N Then a little dash shop so s-h-o-p then a dot f-o-u-r-t-h-w-a-l-l dot com but again i'll pop the link in the description also if you want a cheeky little discount sign up to patreon and five pound and up tiers get a nice fat discount on merch which definitely makes it worth your while and you get access to all the lovely bonus content on patreon too so it's a win-win thanks so much if you do make a purchase and if you do please tag me on my insta at nikki mccarb london when it arrives so i can see your beautiful faces if you're new around here and you're not yet subscribed i'd love for you to join the ghoul gang we're a friendly bunch so do come and join us 
Also, if you do like the show and you'd like to support what I make, then firstly, check out the merch. But then also, why not consider becoming a patron like these amazing top tier legendary executive Patreon producers, Amy, Christina, Christoph, Jess, Karen, Kate, Kevin, Mary, Sally, Sam, Sarah, Teresa, V, and Veronica, and all of our other patrons too. Thanks to everyone that signed up after the 2022 Weird News Roundup. I'm so pleased that you enjoyed it and thanks for giving my January a boost, which has definitely been much needed. I can't say thank you enough to all of you. There's also other links as well in the description, but I'm aware this is going on a little bit long. So if you want to support the show, then it will just be under that section. As you know, all support is 100% integral for me being able to continue making this show. And thanks from the bottom of my heart for even considering supporting me. You're the absolute best. Thanks for joining me for another macabre tale from London's past. I've been Nikki Druce and I'll see you ghouls next time. Let's not look at my broken thumbnail, alright? You didn't see it, okay? Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.